0: Warning, this podcast may contain graphic and triggering content. Please listen at your own risk. Each individual struggle is different and everyone's recovery and healing journey is different. Please reach out to a certified medical professional if you need help. Welcome to episode 32 of Stomp the Stigma, the podcast aimed to fight the stigma surrounding mental health through education, awareness, experiences, stories, resources, and the vulnerable truth. Joining me to Stomp the Stigma today is music therapist Fleur Hughes. She's my second music therapist that I am having on the podcast, and I had such a great conversation with her. I'm so excited for you guys to hear this one. We talked all about what music therapy is, her journey into music therapy, as well as a little bit about music and culture, as she has lived in three different continents, plus a little bit about when you would use music therapy or when music therapy would be better or more effective than the alternative. Fleur also spent five years in the British Army, so we got to talk a little bit about mental health in the military and first responders as well as her transition back to society after serving and what that was like for her, and how music therapy helped with that journey. So, I hope you guys love this episode as much as I do. I think it was a great conversation and some great insight into music therapy as well as life in the military. So, enjoy. Okay, well, thank you for joining me again. <laughs> I'm excited to talk to you about both music therapy and your experience in the military. Um, I know those are kind of two very different things. Well, in your case, not so different things, but um, I'm excited to hear both sides of of that story.
1: Ah, Thank you, Alana. And uh, yes, thanks for having me here again. Um, We actually had spoken a few weeks ago and I had then reached out to you after the podcast to say, actually, would you mind re-interviewing me? Because upon sort of reflection, I had realized that um, some of the answers perhaps weren't my best answers. Um, so, you know, thank you for giving me a second chance. And I think in terms of a mental health perspective, that's, that's a really important thing to keep in mind. Um, you know, I know a lot of students when we're going through exams and writing tests, it's like if I don't get an A plus or an A the first time, you know, I'm really hard on myself. Um, But, you know, you can rewrite an exam or a test. Um, And sometimes in life, you know, whether it's imposter syndrome or this idea of being perfectionist, actually um, being able to say, you know what, maybe that wasn't my best and I need to try try again. So this is my do-over. So thank you very much.
0: Oh, you're so welcome. I'm excited. I think this one's going to be even better than the first one. (laughs) Okay, I want to start with the music therapy side of things. Um, As you know, you are the second music therapist to come on the podcast, Um, and I did ask this question to Jessie when she was on, but I'm curious what your answer is as well. Um, So, in your opinion or definition, um, what is music therapy?
1: So, music therapy is the use of music and music-based elements, for example, pitch, rhythm, or melody, to meet a specific goal or aim. So as an example, how would you use rhythm to help someone with Parkinson's improve their gait? How would you use lyric analysis and the process of analyzing lyrics to help you with your own sort of uh, anxiety? At the core of the work that we do as music therapists is the therapeutic relationship. So that means the relationship that I have with the person that I'm working with and in my perspective or approach i work from a humanistic perspective so that means i see that the person that i'm working with as the expert in their own sort of um, health management and that means that i always meet them from a place of unconditional positive regard and with empathy and always understanding that i'm there to assist or support you in meeting your goals or aims and the thing that i love the most about music therapy is this idea of connection, because we all connect with music at some level and we all have some relationship um, or experience in how music has shaped our lives or informed us as people.
0: I find music therapy so interesting and something that I've never really heard about much before or before a few months ago, I guess. So I'm very interested. So, how did you get into music therapy in the first place? Like, was that something that you always wanted to do?
1: So, my experience of music therapy uh, was sort of a long and winding road. Um, Essentially, many moons ago, I'd finished doing my bachelor degree in South Africa, that was around 2002. And then I ended up moving to the UK, um, and my bachelor degree was a performance degree. So, my very first job that I had was actually as a high school music teacher. And in my early 20s, um, it was a tough job. So I actually, after three years, just went through a lot of burnout and had to spend some time reflecting on, you know, is this job great for my mental health? Um, and at the time, I realized it wasn't. So I started exploring, you know, what, what is something else that I can do? And a friend had mentioned to me, you know, um, have, have, had you ever thought about joining the army as a musician, the British army? Um, and, you know, I hadn't. But I was like, you know, I'm in a job that sort of at that time was just sort of sucking the life force out of me. And I thought, you know, if I make a change in my job, um, maybe it'll make me a happier person. And so I ended up leaving teaching and I ended up joining the army. And it was actually my time in the military um, that led me to my third career choice, which was to become a music therapist. And, you know, I think a lot of us... Our lives might go through different roles, different jobs, and different things that will lead us one day to finding the thing that is really your passion and your enjoyment. Uh, which obviously for me is music therapy. But part of my journey to become a music therapist was in um, during my time in the army. My, my first few years was as a musician, and then um, I decided, you know, I, I wanted to try something different. I'd always been a musician, and I ended up going into a different job role. And in 2009, I ended up going out to Afghanistan. And it was my sort of time on operational tour that got me thinking about, you know, how can we manage our own mental health in different ways? Um, obviously, you know, when you're on operations, there's a lot of stress, physical, emotional, mental stress, a lot of pressure. And um, it just made me think a little bit about, you know, when I'm sort of working on my own well-being, how do I do that? And music was always a way that I would use um, that as a coping mechanism. And so, while I was on tour, I literally just Googled, you know, Music Therapy UK or Music Therapy Courses. Um, I started thinking a little bit more about, you know, what is therapeutic about music? Is there something like music therapy? And essentially found the course that I ended up enrolling in, which was a master's program um, in Bristol at the University of West England. And I ended up leaving the army a few years later to go and do my master's and you know it's interesting as well when i think about one's life's journey is there's you know in terms of mental health a lot of fear a lot of apprehension a lot of worry around you know if i leave this one thing is the next thing going to be the right thing to do Um, and sometimes it's circumstance sometimes it's an epidemic that says actually you know what you've lost a job it's time to do something different sometimes it, it was just a thought you know it's like this one thing isn't working out for me someone suggested this let me try it and and um, in terms of even therapy if you ever want to access therapy it's also finding the form of therapy that works for you because it might be that one type of therapy you'll try it doesn't work for you you know explore something else um, and for me a big reason that i sort of was really drawn to the creative arts is because in music therapy, the music is the framework. It isn't the talking. So all the things that you need to work through, whether they you know, whether it's anxiety, stress, guilt, fear, whatever it is, you do that within the music and the music-based technique instead of a talking-based therapy.
0: They say that the average person changes careers like five or six times throughout their life, but... But yours were all somewhat related, moving from, from career to career. So music has always been a part of your life since you were young?
1: Yes, very much yeah. so. Um, and even though I had three sort of very different careers, you know, educated, sorry, educator, being a teacher, music teacher, to a soldier, being in the military, to therapist, Um, They also had three jobs that were very interrelated through the music. The music was always on the base. But also, I think in some ways my skills as a therapist, my observational skills, my listening skills, those are skills I sort of developed and fine-tuned within the military. But in terms of, you know, being able to schedule, being able to think on your feet, being able to, um, to deal with a very busy workload, those were certainly skills that I gained in teaching. Mm-hmm. So you might change career, uh, you know, in my case, three times in your life, but none of the skills that you learn are wasted skills.
0: That's a very good point. I'm on my second career, which is completely different from the first one. You have a very interesting career. <laughs> <laughs> the skills have definitely transferred. Yeah, that's that's a good point.
1: What was your first job, may I ask?
0: Um, I was in oil and gas for seven years. Before I switched to beer. <laughs> so it's it's very different. Um, I was still in a lab, but yeah, not quite the same.
1: And again, you know, I think for a lot of people, we can many people can relate to that. Um, I actually know of many people who, who are teachers, mm-hmm. who leave teaching to become psychologists or therapists. I know of many people when they leave the military, actually become teachers. So... Again, in oil and gas, I know many people have left oil and gas and who've gone and found other careers, whether it be in the military, whether it be as a therapist, whether it be as a teacher, Um, and I call them, you know, transferable skills. So Mm -hmm. no job is ever wasted time.
0: Absolutely. In
1: learning, no degree is ever a wasted piece of education.
0: Yeah. Oh, I agree. I agree. So since you deal with music or you listen to music and you interact with music, all day w- at work. Do you listen to music at home or in your free time as well? It's a bit of a 50-50. <laughs>
1: um, sometimes I, I do use music to help with my own sort of emotional or physical regulation. Um, if I'm having a day where I'm feeling rather stressed or tense, I will certainly put on some 9-inch nails or I'll have some Rage Against the Machine, Marilyn Manson, something with a really heavy rhythm, to sort of help me decompress and deal with that. Um, But other days, I have to say something that I'm enjoying more in my life um, is getting used to embracing the silence and having quiet time. And I think what's important about that is it just gives me time to sort of physically rest my ears, my voice, but also just an emotional level to enjoy and process things without the need to say something. So enjoying, you know, within music, a, a pause or a rest serves its function. Yeah. And so in my own life, I, I take that musical application and apply it to myself. Yeah. Um, and mindfulness has become a big part of that. And that is something that I can speak to as well, is the use of mindfulness with music. So being more mindful as to, are we listening to music with words, or are we listening to music that has no words? If we're listening to music with words, you know, what do the words say to us? What are the words saying? So thinking about the messaging of the music. If we're listening to music which is instrumental, you know, how does that affect our, our body, um, our mind? And again, you know, with the listening, I do a lot of breath work. Mm-hmm. So coming back to, um, you know, I might put on a piece of relaxation music. I love minimalist music, so maybe some of glass. And I'll just sit comfortably. And breathe to the music. You know, if you are choosing music for relaxation, some of the tips I can give you is thinking about music with a sort of steady tempo, music that isn't too fast, but music that isn't too slow, and essentially instrumental music for breath work is very important. Um, In my own experience, I find when I listen to music with words, it detracts from the breathing because I become so focused on what the words are saying. So for relaxation, you know, some instrumental music in your preferred genre. Is a great place to start and to just sit down and breathe along with the music. And, you know, mindfulness tells us there really is no right or wrong way to breathe. It is just about being aware of the breath. And some days I I, I use that. I'll listen to a piece of music and once the music has helped me to ground, I'll spend a few minutes just sitting in the quiet and enjoy taking in that space. I love that.
0: Okay, I want to move to kind of your work a little bit. Um, you mentioned that you're going to be offering music therapy through Supporting Wellness here in Calgary. Um, yes. Do you have a plan kind of when that's going to be happening and, and what's going on there?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, so so the plan is a, a full transition um, around September. So, yeah, yeah I have my, my day job. My day job, I'm very lucky. Um, you know, many therapists will have their full-time job and then they sort of have their, their contracting in or private practice work. So my, my sort of day job is in a school, but my, um, th- this work with supporting wellness will be providing um, individual and or group sessions, either virtual or in person. They have a beautiful space um, just in McLeod Trail. And the idea is that it'll be mostly evenings or weekends starting in September and uh, mostly um, working with children, but adults as well. They can be individual sessions, they can be sort of um, uh, family or duo-based sessions, and within that work, you know, some of the stuff that I'll be doing will be receptive music therapy. So that means the listening-based interventions, whether that's music and mindfulness, whether it's analyzing lyrics, whether it's using music for relaxation and helping music to reduce anxiety or to de-stress. And then the active-based stuff, and that's the doing stuff. So that could be improvisation, singing, songwriting, uh, drumming, and so forth. And um, if it's at the space, I will be providing instruments. So people don't have to bring their own instruments. I provide those. If they're virtual, you know, somebody, for instance, would love to learn how to play the ukulele um, while sort of managing their mental health, so using the uke to help you to de-stress, um, you know that works really well virtually, but um, yeah. Now that we're sort of transitioning back to in person, I will be doing in person sessions as well. And um, supporting wellness, they ha- are quite a cool practice because they have so many things that they provide, like EMDR. Um, they do a lot of sort of body-based work. They have traditional talk therapy, but then they also do um, neurofeedback, and they have this new cool thing called an equiscope which can sort of help with chronic pain management. So, you know, if you are looking for any sort of um, psychological family services, you can certainly look at what they do at um, www.supportingwellness.com. And then you can also read up about music therapy, which they offer, as well as their speech and language services. Wow.
0: Very cool. Very cool. I love that music can be transferred between any culture, any you don't have to speak the same language to kind of understand or appreciate um, the beauty in the music. You can bond with other people in that way without really communicating. If I don't know how to explain that, but if that makes sense. Because
1: you, you, you don't need the language to communicate when yeah. you have the relationship or the connection or that sort of the experience that's happening between
0: two yeah. people. Yeah, so you did your your music therapy training in the UK, so I'm curious if there's a significant difference between that and if you were to train here in North America.
1: So yes, um, there are some fundamental differences. Uh, In the UK, music therapy is at a master's level, and in Canada, it's at a bachelor level. Also, in the UK, music therapy is regulated, so the title is regulated the profession is regulated, which means... If you haven't got your masters and done your training, you cannot call yourself a music therapist. Um, In Canada, it's a bit of a wild west. So some provinces are regulated. So counseling therapy is regulated, for instance, in Ontario or PEI. Alberta is currently going through the process. So the Association of Counseling Therapy of Alberta ACTA will become the College of Counseling Therapy um, of Alberta once regulation happens. And it's important because I think, you know, one of the the, the big things around any form of therapy that you seek, not just music or art or drama, but any therapy is to make sure that you seek somebody who is competent, you seek somebody who follows a code of ethics, you seek somebody who understands what their scope of practice is. And, you know, um, from a cultural or value standpoint, that is very important as well because, People need to know, you know, if I work with somebody who perhaps isn't from my sort of Western um, perspective, you know, what are cultural things that I need to keep in mind? If somebody comes to me um, seeking therapy perhaps, and it's something that I can't help with, I need to be able to refer out and know, you know, these are my limitations, but who can I refer to so that this person finds the best help for them? You know, it's also about, it's always about protecting the public so that is why regulation is key and also protecting yourself as a professional and those people who you work with. because there are some unscrupulous people out there who um, are not regulated, who do not have the training, who, who maybe not you know unscrupulous but who perhaps aren't informed that that music therapy actually is something you need to go train for. and they might think you know I play guitar, I sing therefore it must be therapy. And um, actually it's not. You know, a big part of music therapy as well, I think, is understanding um, counter-indications and triggers in music. Because you may listen to a song that might trigger a certain memory or emotion that could make you feel very angry. Um, And then you decide that you need to go work through some of that anger or those emotions. And if you didn't see someone who's a music therapist, they might not know how to safe or ethically use music to address that sort of emotion that you need to work through. So regulation is important. Canada is moving forward with this, which makes me very happy. Um, And, you know, I think another thing as well in the UK with music therapy is the perception of what is music therapy and what is not. Um, You know, and I think another thing here is just for people to empower themselves and if they aren't sure if they you know the person who they see is a music therapist they can always go look at the canadian association of music therapists cat or the um, music therapy association of alberta mtaa to make sure that their music therapist has the training has completed their internship has their mta status that's key and essentially that the person that they're working with is a qualified professional um because we as music therapists certainly are.
0: Yes, that that is very important, definitely. We kind of hinted at the fact that you have lived in South Africa and the UK, and now you're in Canada. Um, Have you seen kind of cultural differences in the way that people use music in those different places?
1: Yes, most definitely. I think it's interesting, you know, when I grew up in South Africa, um, music was used very much in a traditional sense. Um, You know, the the various indigenous populations in South Africa um, have their own style of music. You know, for instance, there's something called township jazz, which has a very sort of specific sound. And if you hear it, it sounds very South African. You can sort of hear, you know, you can hear through the rhythm, the melody, um, the pulse of the music. You know, it really speaks to that sort of cultural population, Um, when I moved to the UK, I I knew nothing about country music, Um, and actually it was my third year of training, I did the third year of my degree, Um, I had to do my practicum here in Canada, because at that point we were here, we came to Canada in 2014, Um, and you know, having never grown up with country music, in North America, people listen to country music, so that is something I had to incorporate into my own sort of learning. Um, Some of my instruments that I use as well in Canada, for instance, I have a washboard, I have musical spoons, things that as I sort of developed relationships with people, you know, a lot of people who grew up in the and Farms were like, I can relate to a washboard. It's something my grandparents used. Uh, So I've got a washboard. And when people see the instrument, they make that connection, they tell me their story. Why do we have this instrument? This is is what it's about. Um, I think for many... Cultures, you know, certainly again in South Africa, there's a certain aspect of traditional medicine where music is used to help people to heal um, and, and sort of, uh, y- you know, work for their well-being using music. In, in the UK, um, you know, music therapy is seen as a profession, as I mentioned, a regulated profession. So therefore, you know, my work is no, dis- no dissimilar to what a psychologist or a social worker or another therapist would do. Um, you know I think from a cultural point in Canada you know we still seem to perhaps think that music therapists have this recreational purpose but actually no you know our work is more mental health based and um, also depending the clients that we work with understanding what are some of the cultural implications with music. Um, every culture has their instruments has a rhythm or a song or a folk tune that represents them. Um, In many cultures, we use music in in times of joy, like weddings. We use music at at times of sadness and death. And for many people, you know, if if we think about even in the military, you know, the traditional military music, which is a culture on its own, goes back hundreds and hundreds of years when in the olden days in the battlefield, you know, you had the drummer walk onto the field, the five-player, um, Certainly in the military with repatriation parades, you know, celebrations, pass-up parades, music uh, forms a very big part of that. Um, and, you know, even in, in Canada, what I found so interesting is moving to the prairie. You know, I, I was in Medicine Hat and then I moved to Calgary. But it's also just this application of country music and the stories and the sort of things that country music tells us. It's in its own way, its own little culture and tradition. And... Um, and as therapists, you know, we, we have to be aware of what, what are some of the cultural implications in using music. I can also speak to that, you know, when you work with First Nations people or Indigenous people, huge protocols around instruments. You know, it's like I don't just pick up the buffalo drum and play it. Being able to understand, you know, what is the cultural tradition behind this instrument, how is it used in their culture. Um, if I were to use a buffalo drum, um, you know, which group of people can I use it with, can't I use it with? And as therapists, you know, being culturally aware and having those conversations with the clients. And part of our assessment will be, um, you know, what instruments am I allowed to use, aren't I allowed to use, as well as other cultural protocols. Um, I can speak to smudging, for instance. As, as, a, as a European therapist, you know, I'm not just going to pitch up and smudge. Um, it's interesting, there's a lot of smudging on Instagram. <laughs> we see smudging everywhere. But again, it's about cultural appropriation. Like, is this something we should be doing if we don't really understand the meaning behind it? Um, so, you know, also with drumming, I always make a point that when I drum, I drum from, um, I don't want to say like an African perspective, but I grew up in South Africa, so my form of drumming is very polyphonic, very rhythmical. I use djembe drums and so forth. Um, and if I were to drum, With, for example, Indigenous teens, I would be aware and understand that um, it may not be something suitable to a boys' group, because perhaps from a cultural point of view, that is not how my work would be informed. And having those discussions and conversations, I think it's so interesting to learn about different people's um, cultures and understanding and worldview, and all of those things inform us as well um, as therapists in the work that we do. And for some of us, it's also understanding, again, like, you know, one form of therapy may be better suited than another one. So, for instance, something like EMDR is often used with military populations um, or arts-based therapies. Uh, Again, with teenagers, you know, even certain interventions. With the teens that I work, you know, a lot of them like doing lyric analysis. A lot of them like the physical act of playing or drumming because it helps you to relieve some of those emotions you're feeling. If we think about working with populations like dementia populations, singing a song, listening to familiar songs can help with memory recall. Um, if I think about Parkinson's, some of the work that we do. So again, that sort of rhythmic aspect, like how would rhythm help someone to retrain their brain to walk? Um, to even things like depression. You know, maybe during COVID, many of us have felt that our mental health is lower. It's you know, We're not feeling great. So perhaps you need to do some songwriting to explore what is it that I'm working through. Um, If you can't actually say that this is how I feel, maybe some instrumental playing will just help you to free up emotionally or physically to help you to start saying, you know, this is some of the stuff that I'm going through. So yeah, just, just, you know, even in terms of, and, and from a cultural point of view, being aware to knowing, like, as a therapist, as a female, can I work with certain populations? Um, dress? How do I need to dress when I work with certain people? Might the space, um, you know, again, are certain instruments going to have, look a certain way um, or, or be appropriate to, to use with the population? Again, especially if, if, for instance, you know, I wouldn't use like a handmade rattle if I didn't understand what the significance of the skin of the rattle was, how this would be used and so forth. And I think, um, You know, certainly in the last few years, we've perhaps all become a bit more culturally aware and culturally sensitive to how we look and how we dress when working with people from other sort of um, traditions and so forth. Mm
0: -hmm. Wow, that is so interesting. I feel like I'm just learning so much every time that I talk to you. (laughs) I was going to ask you, kind of what is it about music that is so therapeutic? I mean, you, you did touch on kind of instances that you use music therapy for but is there kind of something else behind that like why music is so therapeutic to begin with i
1: think you know it's interesting part of it is how we respond physically to music Mm -hmm. i think everybody can relate to the fact that if you're feeling tense you know your shoulders are tense you know low level headache your body's tense when you listen to rhythmic driving music or you go and dance to some electronic dance music, there's an immediate sort of physical release, your body relaxes. The same could be said about playing the guitar, singing, um, drumming. There's a physical aspect of music. The music doesn't happen unless you create it. I think the other part of it is the emotional aspect. I think, you know, uh, we all connect with the music at some level. For some of us, it's through memory. For some of us, it's through a relationship, a song that connects us to another person, a song that's lifted us up through a bad breakup, a song that brings mm-hmm. us down when we need it. Um, the connection piece is very important. I think another thing as well is music is sort of inter interpersonal. There's this relation. There's this relational thing that happens within music. Um, if you go and watch a performance, you know you are there. You're in that moment. You enjoy the performance. There may be some form of therapeutic benefit in how that makes you feel, but that isn't necessarily therapy. In therapy, the therapy aspect of music, which is not different to talking therapy, but it's about that sort of connection, the communication, the how am I using music to reflect back, this is what the client feels, this is what the client needs. How am I using music um, to ground the client? How am I using music to create dialogue? Like the client's telling me this, how is the therapist or reflect that back to say, I'm hearing what you're saying, I'm here to support you. Or actually, you know, I need I, I want to challenge you, I want you to think about it this way. But I think, you know, with music, I'm yet to find someone who hasn't been impacted or have had some relationship with music. Mm-hmm. It really it lifts us up when we're down, it brings us down when we're up. It's, it's, it's a constant in our lives and it's something that connects us from the you know the moment you're born you're, you're you know you're in the, the womb, womb hear that the, the rhythm of the heartbeat to as a child you know you learn your songs you develop a language the use of um, nursery rhymes to a teenager you know you, you deal with all your frustration through listening to music to an adult and, you know you get married you listen to a wedding march you go through your whole life and it's there and then one day, you know, when you die, you have hymns, you have a funeral march, but it's something that's just such a such a part of our lives that it's it's always there. So I love that about music. It's a yeah. thing that we always have and in therapy we, we figure out in music therapy, you know, how do we use it to just pinpoint um, where somebody else might need some extra help.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of people that use music on their own to kind of cheer themselves up or make them feel better um, without the therapy portion of it. So, yeah, that's a really good point.
1: And I think with the therapy is the intentional part. Yeah. it's And it's this, the intentional part. And in some ways, you know, with, within music therapy, you also develop a very intimate relationship with music because you understand... Um, how the music affects the person that you're working with and you need to be very cautious in how you use the music and and that is why also in therapy, you know, as with talk therapy, we as music therapists, we do an assessment, we, we think what are the goals and aims going to be that this person needs to achieve, we work through a sort of treatment plan, um, at the end we evaluate what we do and, you know, that is not dissimilar to what other therapeutic um, sort, sort of that's similar to what other therapists would do so you know there's a whole process and a procedure and that is what sort of makes music therapy different to performance so music as performance would be you listening to the orchestra or you being in the orchestra or playing an instrument and learning an instrument but that process of assessment that process of what is this goal that process of what am I trying to achieve and um, it isn't about a polished performance It's about really tapping into the innate musicality of somebody. And I think that's the other thing that makes music therapy so unique is that you know I've worked with people who um, have physical limitations, people who are non-verbal, people who've had no musical training. And music therapy really works with somebody's most innate musical sense. Mm -hmm. Irrelevant of how old they are, at which part of their lifespan they're at. um, It really is for anyone and everybody.
0: That kind of leads into, I have a few, a few questions that kind of all go together, but um, are there certain situations where music therapy would be more beneficial than kind of an alternative form of therapy, like talk therapy or something else? Or I guess what situations would someone use music therapy in instead of the alternative? And are there situations where it would work better than the alternative? Or is it just another form of therapy?
1: I think it's both. Mm-hmm. I think that there are times, I, I think I'll, I'll speak to both of the, both points. I think sometimes it needs to be as a co-treatment. So I think like maybe somebody um, would, you know, like I would maybe have to use some of my counseling skills, my verbal skills with somebody and then we, we add in the music and the change in the experience that happens within the music. You know, somebody can also probably tell me, like, this is how I feel as I'm, I'm engaging in this musical framework. This is what's happening to me. This is where I'm noticing the change. Um, you know, sometimes it's, it's another piece where maybe somebody goes and has three sessions of, I don't know, they take talk therapy. Um, they find it's not working for them. Maybe they need to be referred to me as a music therapist. I do five sessions just to help the person free up. It's like, you know, maybe you're feeling tense and stressed about going to talk therapy. Well, maybe you need a few sessions of music therapy to help you to free up, and then I would refer them back to their talk therapist. Um, maybe it's doing co-therapy. I, I do do co-therapy. So, you know, I've, I've worked with psychologists and OTs, and PTs, where it's, you know, as an example, with a physiotherapist, they might be doing um, body-based rehab stuff, and then I use the music as a supporting mechanism, you know. Nothing's going to motivate you to want to, I don't know, use a own machine better than someone providing you music to do that. Or a song that's going to motivate you to, you know, want to go and exercise. Um, maybe we're working on emotional regulation. A great way, you know, for somebody to process anger and feeling stressed is to play an instrument, and maybe we'll do some loud drumming to help someone ground themselves and then, you know, maybe that opens a space for somebody to say, actually, you know, this is why I'm feeling this way. So, it you know, sometimes also if somebody is non-verbal, if somebody perhaps, uh, you know, might use sign language or other forms of communication like a talking device or um, visuals, music therapy is a great way to incorporate the way that they communicate. For instance, I might do songwriting and if somebody has a assistive technology device, they could use that within the songwriting. They don't even need to speak. They can use their AT device. Um, you, you know, if somebody, for instance, is has been in a car, uh, let's say an accident, um, they are now in a wheelchair, or perhaps they're, they're in a bed, they can't move. Um, maybe we can use music-based technology, so iPad apps, to help someone. Um, find a form of self-expression or, or work through their self-awareness through using apps. So there are so many different interventions that we use, and I think that's the great thing is you know we have so many tools and kids as a music therapist. That really, when I meet somebody to do therapy, um, the therapy looks different. You know, if you came to me, then and you had a session, your session would look so different based on your needs compared to when I'm working in the elementary school with kids, compared to when I'm working with you know a family who maybe needs some support um, with their team. Looks so different to somebody who's in end-of-life care, who needs a song to do some legacy work and to have a memory of that person to keep on once they pass away. So, you know, with music therapy, people might say, but, you know, I want you to do that form of therapy with me like you're doing it with so-and-so. My response will be actually, no, the way that music therapy is going to live to you is truly unique for you it is not a one-size-fits-all one
0: One question that just came to me i'm curious as a therapist yourself do you go to therapy
1: Uh, yes yes i do Uh, that's another really important that's another thing in the uk so actually part of my training as i was becoming a, a music therapist during my master's degree was you had to go through um your own personal therapy and that is a process that I've upheld in my upheld in my own life, because as a therapist, I need to be the best therapist that I can be for my clients, and therefore I need to be able to work through whatever issues or, or mental health and um, concerns I might have. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm feeling anxious, if I'm stressed, if I'm tired, if I'm you know being sort of I don't know fighty uh, because I'm at the end of my tether. You know, how can I be an effective therapist? I need to work through those things to be able to pitch up and be there for my clients. Right. So, yeah. Sometimes therapists need therapy and that's okay. (laughs) Absolutely,
0: that's okay. (laughs) I think everybody should go to therapy. You
1: know what? I think another misconception is we have this idea of what therapy must look like. Um, Perhaps we all think a therapist looks a certain way. We all think therapy once you're in it, you're going to be in it for 15 years. But, you know, for some people, Maybe single sessions is what they need. Just like a session where you do a check-in and you have somebody help you for a short amount of time and, you know, it might be three months. Um, My sort of average treatment plans are mostly 10 weeks. So that's sort of based on the seasons. 10 weeks doesn't sound like a lot, but, you know, if you think about school, it's it's a fall program, a winter program, a spring program. Um, You do need to see a certain amount of change. Um, So the way that I work, I don't just do one session. Normally, I would say, you know, six, eight or ten weeks. I've had people who've had six weeks and that's all that they've needed and they come back to me six months later for another six weeks. I've had other people who I have worked with for three years. So it's, it's, you know, it looks unique. And just because, you know, someone's been with me for three years, that doesn't mean the therapy isn't working. It just means that within those three years, their needs change. Maybe they mm-hmm. come to me at the start and we might have done instrumental playing but then actually they wanted to do lyric analysis but then they actually wanted to learn an instrument to help with self-regulation so um again there is not one size fits all thing but again you know if you are also looking at accessing therapy one of the questions you have every right to ask when you go and see a therapist is you know how long would you like do you know how many sessions do you think that i need and listen to what the therapist says based on their judgment and their training um, and their knowledge as
0: well. Mm-hmm. That is a very good point. I've always seen kind of on on um, therapy websites and stuff where you have to do a minimum of six sessions or something like that. And I never really understood why that was, but that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense to me.
1: And, and for me, something that's really important and I think also something... You know, at Supporting Wellness, their, their motto is change is possible. And I think that's the other thing with therapy is we as therapists, we look for that moment of change. Within the music, it's it's a lot more evident. You know, if I see somebody coming in and we're doing a drumming intervention, and it's this frantic, very fast drumming, and by the end of the session, you know, it's very regulated rhythmic beat, I can see there's been a reduction in physical tension through the use of the tempo, through the speed, through observing the body language. And... Um, And, you know, therapy is not a quick fix. It is about committing the time, following through the treatment process, using the strategies, and not just something to driving a car. You're never going to learn how to drive a car if you don't do it every single day. Um, And it's the same with therapy. So with mental health, you know, if if somebody needs some tools to help manage their anxiety or their guilt or their fear or whatever it is they're hanging on to, um, the consistency is Using the techniques as the person suggests. So, you know, that's another thing to take in mind. Often when people say to me You know, I've had all these different forms of therapy. Nothing has worked. I often ask, you know um, How consistent were you in actually doing what was expected? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, that is part of that relationship and I find with music, often with music, we love using music And it's such a natural thing that we can use in so many ways. Um, You know, also part of the work that I do, my humanistic approach, is giving you tools that you can take away and incorporate, whether it's, you know, having a playlist to help you de-stress while you're driving, you know, having a playlist to help you sleep. Maybe it is getting a small selection of instruments that you will play every day to engage in. Maybe it's you figuring out a song and going through a process of songwriting over 10 weeks, where, you know, as we sort of deal with, deal with whatever it is you need to work on, we do it through that process. Um, but music therapy, is tangible. It's something you can take away. And also in some ways, it's fleeting because when we have a session, unless I record what you do, that moment that we've shared, once that moment is done, once that session is done, that moment moves on. Mm. So there is a sort of transient aspect to music, um, which, is again, it changes the whole time.
0: Okay, before we shift gears to your military experience, was there anything else um, kind of music therapy related that you wanted to bring up? No, I
1: think that was that is pretty much it.
0: Um. So, I yeah, I want to talk about your kind of military experience prior to entering music therapy. I guess mental health concerns are very prevalent in the armed forces and in first responders and people in that kind of a profession. From your experience, why do you think that is?
1: You know, I can obviously only speak about my own experience, um, about my own lived experience having been through this. I think part of it is, it's the expectations of the the job, whether you're um, a soldier, or or a policeman or woman, or a first responder, or a nurse, um, you know, a, a doctor, these sort of very highly stressful jobs where you are dealing with a lot of adrenaline and a lot of pressure, I think there is a certain aspect of how you, how your mental health will be affected. You, you know, going into the job, you know that there are going to be certain things you'll be expected to do, possibly see, and how you deal with those things. Um, any amount of training is useful, but also who you are as a person will sort of, be the cause and effect, like how you are as a person and how you deal with stuff will be how you're going to react, you know, in the moment or as those things unfold. For me, the big one is pressure. There's a lot of mental pressure, physical pressure, emotional pressure put on you within certain jobs. And part of that is when you're dealing with those situations, you can't necessarily at that moment feel an emotion or get, uh, you know, deal with that thing in that moment. So with you know, perhaps you've seen a traumatic event, and you know, there's the visual aspect of what has happened, there's the emotional aspect of what has happened, and now you carry that away from you. You know, you can't while you're dealing with this traumatic event, you know, just burst into tears. That is, you are trained not to do that. But when you leave, what happens then? Do you just leave and you don't deal with it? And then it just keeps on building and building and building until it gets to a point where maybe you, I don't know, develop some bad habits and, you know, yourself medicating for alcohol. Like, not, not a great coping mechanism. Or perhaps, you know, perhaps part of your training is you don't deal with it, but then maybe you need some peer support and you just go talk to a peer who's like, actually, you know, maybe you need some professional help. And I think what's also really important is within these, these roles is knowing there's a time where, they, where you need peer support. But your peer, for most part, may not be a qualified mental health professional. And then you need to actually also know, where can I go to find the actual professional help to? And I think, you know, again, within these roles as well is part of it is perception. You know, people have a perception of what a first responder does, what someone the police does, what a soldier does. Um, and that is a lot to also bear on your own shoulders. You know, it is also... Interesting when people refer to me in the military, you know, they refer to me as Fleur-a-Soldier and uh, not different to being a fleur therapist but, you know, Soldier Fleur was a very different person because I had to be a certain way and behave a certain way and, you know, the, the, the expectation of, of what they expect to be in the military, I had to do that. Um, and that can just wear you down. And I think for many of us who, who've been in the military or are in a first responder job, it's, you know, I like using in this analogy of you're like a sculpture, and all the little things that happen to you in your career or in your job or the things that you see and do, um, you know, as they affect you, they start chipping away at you. So you know you're this the sculpture, you're finished, you're done with your military training, you go out, and then the expectations of the job come in, and as you deal with stuff, it's like they chip away, they chip away, they chip away, they chip away, until one day this is this little, piece of, I don't know, concrete or whatever it is or sculpture was was made from, and that's you. But I think also how you fix these little chips and these little things and these little cracks that appear, that is, that is like the mental health. How do you fix these little cracks? Do you seek professional help? Does your organization have a wellness or a you know, mental health committee? Um, do you have insurance and you can access the sort of mental health supports through that? Um, so, you know, it's it's coping mechanisms, it's resiliency. And how, how do you not only as a person um, help yourself with those things, but also depending on where you work, whether it's the military, whether it's the police, whether it's a hospital, like what supports do they also have in place to make sure that you can stay sort of mentally, physically, and emotionally fit?
0: Mm-hmm. You talked about kind of the public uh, perception of people in that field. Are there any kind of stigmas or or incorrect perceptions that the general public kind of associates with the military or the armed forces that are not true or, or that bother you more than others? You
1: know, w- one thing that I always find interesting is, you know, as a, as a woman having served in the military, is the perception of how women are treated in the military yeah i think many people think there's us and them so you know there's like the way women do stuff and the way men do things you know and i i say to people that actually it's like it's my family they're my brothers and sisters we are all in it together and you know in my my experience of when i was in the military it didn't make a difference that i was white woman south african immigrant to the uk none of those things made a difference i was a soldier and, you know, if I had someone next to me who was a, a guy from a different country, different spirituality or whatever, it didn't make a difference to me because we were all in this together. So there's actually a great sense of cohesiveness and in my experience, like like a family being in the military. Um, and I think often people think, you know, because you're a woman, you're treated differently in the military or because you're, you know, you're white, you're treated differently or whatever. In my experience, that wasn't like that. Um, you know, I think something else as well is this experience that when you are, you know, I guess, a soldier or the police or, or or a first responder, um, that you're not approachable. Like people think because you know you're a soldier that I cannot talk to you because maybe you think you're better than me or I'm scared to talk to you, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and that's not true. Like when people spoke to me about being in the military, I welcomed it. I think there's another stigma, you know, a stigma around mental health where people think it's like. You don't feel things, and you're taught not to feel things, you know, and I think there is a time and a place to feel. Um, Sometimes you have to do your job, you cannot feel, you need to be the mechanical, the rational, but then actually, you know what, you can go away and spend time and work through those emotions and feel what you need to feel, and it's important, because if you don't, and you repress all that stuff, it's going to cause more issues down the line. You know, I think as well, maybe there's some stigma, again, stigma around mental health. I don't want to talk about it because it's a sign of weakness. Um, and to that, I actually say no. In my experience, is a sign of strength. You know, it takes strength to be in a certain job. It took a lot of strength for me to decide I'm gonna be a soldier and go out to Afghanistan and be in a war. And you know, when things weren't great, t- to be able to say, actually, I need help with something. Or, um, you know, you're my friend, you're my colleague, you're my family. You need help with something, Like, what can we do? Yeah. Um, and I think that's just a stigma around mental health, full stop. I think we think that people, when they have a mental health diagnosis, that that diagnosis defines them. So just like the term soldier defined me, it was only one part of who I was. You know, when somebody has a mental health diagnosis, for example, someone with bipolar, that's only one piece of who that person is. Um, it doesn't define them. It doesn't only make them that diagnosis or, Um, you know and I think another thing as well is we do think it's it's weak for people to say actually I I think I'm dealing with something maybe I have depression like maybe I need Mm -hmm. to go find some help maybe I need to take some time off to find some help and you know in our society I think we often think it's it's weak to say that we need to deal with stuff but um, as Simone Biles even recently showed us with the Olympics it takes strength to say I need a time out to recover to do what I need to do, to get myself mentally back to where I need to be, to be able to carry on. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you take a sick day to deal with the flu or whatever, you know, maybe sometimes you need a mental health day to just help you get back on
0: track. Yeah. Oh, I completely agree with that. I think companies should have mental health days as well as sick days.
1: It's, yeah, me, me, me too. You yes. know, it's like a personal day and sometimes you just need a personal day to work through whatever it is you're working through. Mm-hmm. And I think as well, you know, people need to be a lot more transparent in 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 in, in, in saying, you know, this is our mental health policy, this is our wellness policy. Yeah. Um, it, it makes a difference also when you work for organisations. who have you have policies where it's like, you know, we're going to have a potluck and we're just all going to meet it on Friday at lunchtime and get together and have a good laugh. You know, I think in COVID, a lot of these things changed because we mm-hmm. became so disconnected. We all had to isolate. But I think now, you know, as we're sort of coming back to being in person again, um, being able to say like, you know, let's all go on a walk at lunchtime, a wellness walk. You know, maybe we need to have someone come in and do and like an organisational music and mindfulness thing with us, like you know, to help us all just to sort of reconnect as an organisation, as a school, as a company. You know what I mean? Um, and I think even just music, you know, if you're in, if you're in a meeting, why can't you start your meeting with a motivational song? You know, just. Things like that to help us sort of um, think more of us or we as opposed mm-hmm. to us and them. Um, and most most places when, you know, when I deal with organizations or companies or places in terms of wellness, I, I do ask, like, you know, what is your mental health community like? Like, what supports are there for people? Are people aware of those supports? Sometimes people just aren't. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, if I have anxiety. What's EFAP? Who do I speak to? Like, you know, and, and just knowing... Um, making these things more visible as you make other things visible, you know? Yes, yeah. so... Yeah, oh, I yeah. agree.
0: Uh, back to what you were saying before, I, I was going to ask you if your kind of experience in the military was different because you're a woman in what I assume is a male-dominated field. Um, but I guess, like, you're all... You all dress the same. You all... Like, you don't know anything about anyone else's past or history or what they've been through and you're all in there for like one common goal. So I that it kind of surprises me that uh, you've experienced it in the same way that a man would. Um but I love that. I,
1: I you mentioned, you know, we sort of all look the same, we dress the yeah. same, we all had to go through the same experience. Like when I was in basic training, we were all in the same thing together. Um it was all the same rules and regulations. Um, and I think, you know, again, when you're in a certain job, I think a lot of that just comes from assumption and perception. Yeah. Um, you know, so if you're not sure about something, feel free to ask. If, you know, I think a lot of it also has to do with media portrayal. Um, yeah. And again, my experiences are obviously just based on what I experienced. They might be different for somebody else. But I think if if, if I think about, like, you know, in the military, we're all in this together, um, we we all have the same common goal that we're working towards. There's sort of neutrality. You know, it's not like somebody meets me and says to me, you know, so what's your mental health diagnosis? No one even knows whether I have that or not. And I sometimes wish, you know, we could approach sort of mental health in terms of the way I went through my experience in the military where when you go in and you're like a teen slate. No one really mm-hmm. cares about Fleur before she was in the military. And I wish, you know, when somebody comes into a job where you meet someone in your life who, who perhaps has recently gotten a mental health diagnosis. You know, as an example, like something like schizophrenia. Um, you know, it should be like when someone says to you, "I, I have schizophrenia." I'm just letting you know in case this ever comes up in the conversation. It shouldn't. It, it should be like when Fleur went into the military. You shouldn't worry about all the other stuff that happened before that. It should be okay. And again, you know, don't just judge that person based on their diagnosis, like, if, if you'd known this person for a few years before they told you or a few months, um, you know, you've gotten to know this person, you like this person, you spend time with this person, you spend time with the person, the diagnosis isn't that person. Mm-hmm. And just like in the military, um, you know, being a soldier isn't the only thing that defines a person. So, you know, I think, you know, that's something I would like people out there to know, that we all have so many different facets and interests. Um, and things and and I wish it was the same in how we see mental health. Yeah. If that makes
0: sense. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Going back to what you said about um the kind of the media perception or or portrayal of um the military, oftentimes we hear about military personnel developing kind of mental health conditions like PTSD. And uh, things like that. Do you have any past trauma from being in the military that you hold on to?
1: I I don't think so. I, I've explored I've explored this quite a lot. Um, I wouldn't say trauma. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't say trauma. But one of the things that I noticed when I uh, came back from my R and R after my, my tour, for instance, you know, you're at Afghanistan for three months. You then have like two weeks off before you go back to do your next three months. So afterwards was like well like six months long. But what I find hard is you're in like a state of disconnection because you're away from your family for three months and then you have to come back to be with your family for about two weeks to then leave again. So it was interesting how I think for many people in those two weeks when they go back for their R&R or for however long it is, you're in this point of disconnection because you can't really reconnect with people only to know that you're leaving again. I think another thing as well is a constant state of um, and, you know, often this is this is one of the main things with PTSD, but people go through this period of hyper-vigilance that just never seems to end. Um, and a big part of that is something I noticed actually when I left the army, was the transition from being in the military. And I only served five years, so my experience wasn't even that long, but transitioning out of the military happens their life. And I think for a lot of people when they leave the military or the police, again, or any sort of first responder job is it's the first one to three years which are the hardest because depending on how long you've been in these organizations, you are trained a certain way, you know, you, you you become used to the processes, the rules and things, and it's very hard to just let those things go when you transition back into civilian life. life. Um, and so for me, you know, the first year, it was hard just getting back into the sort of the flow of things, you know, things weren't so rigid or regimental, um, you know, in a way freeing up, like, you know, you sort of... Become quite eight aty- up, no, 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 not eight up, but like you, you know, you want things done a certain way, so sort of freeing up and being okay if things aren't done a certain way, you know, it's okay to be there at nine instead of always being there at ten to nine, like, you know, freeing up and just letting go. Um, and that is actually something where music therapy really helps me a lot, like improvisation is the idea of just playing freely, you know, not saying I'm going to start the music this way and do it that way. So improvisation helped me to free up my life. Um, another thing as well is. For people who feel this this feeling of hypervigilance, like you're always on edge, like you're always waiting for something to happen, you know, again, the physical aspect of playing an instrument allowed me, like playing guitar, playing piano, playing flute, even singing, just allowed me to focus my time and attention on something else instead of this like feeling of uneasiness, mm-hmm. um, anxiety. I think, you know, anxiety as well. Um, again, not something I, I had a formal diagnosis for, but I think aware that it's a bit of a spectrum too you have some days where if you're not sleeping well you're not going to feel great um and you're going to notice some of that physical tension that brain fog you know that like that fear of what's happening next and songwriting you know is something that helped me with that um by being able to just put down in my journal and journaling is something I've done my whole life and um putting down in my journal how I was feeling and then you know adding the piano into that and making the song but I think it's um you know, I was—I was a i have always been a very self-aware person, so I was aware of when I wasn't sort of feeling myself, um, and I was able to work through that. And perhaps if somebody isn't very self-aware, you know, but, but you have people around you telling you, you know, I'm worried about you, you know, you seem different, you're not quite the same, um, then maybe that is a point that you need to go and find some professional help. And again, you know, don't be scared to seek that help mm-hmm. because you know. You're not scared to join the army or join the police or you know, do the amazing thing you do as a first responder. Um, again, you know, don't don't feel scared. If you can step up to do those things, instead of go to war, you can step up to go and find the hospital.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love that. Um, I do have a couple questions for you that I like to ask a lot of my guests. Um, the first one, we often forget that Therapists and first responders and in your case like military personnel are also Just normal people that require like self-care and all of that kind of thing So I'm curious for you. What do you do for self-care that is not music related?
1: Um, most definitely the time I spend with my horse is self-care time for me. I I purchased a horse a year ago, um, so I go out to the ranch to spend time with her. And when I'm there, there's no music except for her melodious neighing uh, and nickering. But you know, my I'm, I'm a pretty high. Well, say hyper, but I'm, my my energy is pretty high. And uh, you know, when I'm with her, I have to ground myself. Otherwise, she feeds off my energy and gets hyper too. Um, so I love her. You know, any time spent with animals. I I do journal for my self care. Um, I'm like you know, if I need to get something out of paper, I like doing that. So journaling has been something I've continued with in my life. I have my little hobbies that I enjoy doing. I've sort of for the last sort of two years uh, started doing embroidery because again, you know, when you're doing working with a needle and thread, you have to pay attention to pulling it through the hoop and and um, be very mindful that you know you can prick your finger if you don't. Um, and I think sometimes as well, it's just, I, I like watching a lot of um, like old Western movies and military movies, but I find sometimes watching movies is also just for me a helpful way to just process and relate to, oh, somebody else is doing that in the movie, okay, I've been through that experience, I can relate to that, I can process it through that, and it just sort of takes my mind off things. But yeah, and you know, just physical stuff. Um, I'm quite a girly girl too now, you know, it's funny, even though I was in the military, um, you know, I love having a nice like long bath with aromatherapy. The, the more aromatherapy in there, the yeah. better. Um, and just you know, being out of nature while we can, because yeah. in Canada we have very short summers. Yeah. So in summer, I want to be, and now with COVID, I don't want to be online. I want to be outside doing stuff.
0: Oh yeah, I agree one hundred percent. Okay, my last question for you, um, is there a stigma or a misconception surrounding mental health that bothers you the most? Or that you hear most often but isn't true?
1: I I think for me, it's just around the use of language. Yeah. You know, mental health language. Um, It frustrates me when somebody just says, like, that's nuts, or I'm crazy, or you're making me crazy. Um, You know, I think we need to be more aware of how we are intentionally using language. So instead of something, you know, saying, uh, you know, that's nuts, we could say, you know, that's uncertain, or, that's frustrating or that's confusing. So I think, you know, just the use of language is very important with how we um, address mental health things. I think, again, it's the idea that somebody, whenever we think about mental health, we also have this image of somebody who's a violent person. And again, in my experience, that is not true. You you know, yes, there there can be challenging behaviors, Um, again, which if if somebody is not safe for themselves or to others, often people then will be um, in, like, you know, psych wards where that will be um, managed and dealt with there. But I think often, you know, there's this idea that if somebody has a diagnosis, they must be violent. Or another thing which I think is farther from the truth is that if somebody has a mental health diagnosis, they can't keep down a job. Um, and again, you know, I think that if somebody can't keep down a job, it isn't necessarily just because they perhaps have a mental health diagnosis. It could be so many other reasons as well. Maybe it isn't the right job for them. Maybe they don't have the right supports. Maybe they, you know, you know like, just like for me, teaching wasn't the right job for me. Um, I had to go through that period to understand it. Yeah. You know, same thing. If, if, if I was diagnosed with depression, if I left my job as a teacher because I was diagnosed with depression, all somebody would have seen was depression. Yeah. You know, I didn't have a mental health diagnosis when, when I chose to leave my job. You, you know, so I think as well, just again, some of these perceptions we have, someone with mental health must be lazy, someone with mental health, you know, a mental health diagnosis isn't reliable, isn't trustworthy. Yeah. Again, those are only perceptions we have um, that have been perpetuated in some way, whether it's through popular culture, the media, whatever. Um, but in my my experience, actually, farther from the truth. So, you know, be informed, go to reputable websites, you know, listen to podcasts like this, speak to professionals and speak to people who have been through that experience, who have the lived experience, um, instead of just assuming that because, you know, the fake news says this or that, that it's right. Yeah.
0: I love both of those. Those are huge and um, the language one is a big one for me too.
1: And, you know, I think, you know, my last thing with that too also is just how we speak. I sometimes feel it's like we always speak to someone. Um, but, uh, you know, when clients come to me and we talk about mental health, you know, don't speak to someone, speak with someone. There's a difference mm-hmm. with that too. So open, if you are the person asking the questions who isn't sure, ally, be open and experience and truly listen. Don't just hear, but listen to what someone's talking
0: about. Okay, um, if people have more questions for you or want to reach out, um, what is the best way for them to contact you?
1: They can definitely email me. Um, so my email is fleur at supportingwellness.com and if people want to find out a bit more about music therapy or any of the other mental health supports that, that they offer, they can go to www.supportingwellness.com. Um, they're on Instagram, they're on Facebook, they're on email and um, so feel free to reach out there and um my contact details are on there as well perfect okay
0: well thank you for joining me one more time i think this conversation was amazing as well so i'm super excited for this episode Thank you so much for tuning in today. Feel free to reach out at any time. You can contact me on Instagram and Facebook at StompTheStigmaYYC and you can email me at StompTheStigmaYYC at gmail.com. If you like the podcast, please like and subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts. And if you or someone you know would like to come on, I would love to have you share your story, speak your truth, and together we can Stomp the Stigma.